Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting January 9th, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. Last week we took a quick look at an 1883 Scientific American article that doubted whether the telephone would ever replace the telegraph. The question was on the table because on March 10th, 1876, Alexander Graham Bell made the first telephone call to his assistant, Thomas Watson. But how exactly did Bell invent the phone? Journalist and author Seth Shulman has written a new book, The Telephone Gambit, in which he puts forth some compelling evidence that Bell stole the idea for one of the basic elements of the telephone. We'll hear about that, plus we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. Seth Shulman specializes in science and technology. He's written for Smithsonian, Tech Review, The Atlantic, Rolling Stone, and other publications. The Telephone Gambit is his fifth book. I called him at his home in Northampton, Massachusetts. Hi, Seth. How are you today? Uh, good, thanks. How are you, Steve? Pretty good. Good to talk to you. So the uh, the telephone gambit, chasing Alexander Graham Bell's secret. Uh, you know, should we turn over all the cards? What's the secret? <laughs> what happened to me is that I was researching uh, as a fellow at MIT, and I was reading Bell's laboratory notebook, and I stumbled on a, a picture in there that raised alarm bells for me, and uh, turns out to have been copied almost exactly from a patent filing made by Bell's main rival, Elisha Gray. And this started me on a whole search to find out what, what, how in the world uh, a picture like that could, could have gotten into Bell's notebook. Of course, this happens two days before his famous time calling to Watson. So the, the secret is, it looks like uh, Bell plagiarized the, the successful design for a telephone from his rival, Elisha Gray. And I go to great lengths to to unravel what turns out to be quite a twisted tale about how that might have happened. Now, there have been rumors floating about this pretty much since since the the late nineteenth century. Is that right? Absolutely. In fact, uh, Bell's claim to the telephone was controversial right from the start. Um, and so, you know, part of the the question in my mind was, you know. Uh, how could, first of all, how could no one have noticed this in the notebook? Because once you put the pieces together, it's, it's, uh, it's quite a startling thing. How could Elisha Gray have let Bell get away with this? Um, you know, and, and why do we remember the, the history the way we do? Uh, these were just some of the, the, the questions that, uh, that nagged at me and, uh, I decided to switch what I was doing and really try to get to the bottom of it. So why do we remember the history in a certain way? Does it does whoever write the, writes the first account sort of set the template, and then everything else is just a, a riff off of that? Well, I think there, you know, I think I think that's certainly a part of it. The history is written by the winners, and there's no question that that these guys were the winners. Of course, the Bell Telephone monopoly became one of the largest monopolies we've ever had, and the uh, this particular the patent. Uh, that we call the telephone patent, Bell's patent, uh, is still considered to be probably the most lucrative patent uh, ever granted in the United States. So the stakes of this were very high. I think a part of it is also that, you know, we love these lone inventor stories, and Bell does in many ways fit the bill of, of that iconic inventor. I mean, he was an amazing guy. Even even if he did plagiarize the telephone, he also did a, a lot of amazing things and was a real, real visionary. Um, uh, and really got the idea of the telephone right from the start. 
You know, you make me think with, with, uh, this story a little bit about James Watson and the famous tale about him sort of cribbing some of the key data for DNA from Rosalind Franklin's papers there. Right, right. Well, there are a lot of similarities. And, you know, I think whenever the stakes are high at the beginning of a, of a new and exciting technology, you're going to find a lot of this kind of stuff. In this case, it turns out to be just a, a really amazing involved story with a, a love story at the heart of it and a corrupt patent official and uh, all sorts of things that I was able to uh, to dig up out of the primary documents. So tell us a little bit about the love story. His his wife was the daughter of somebody important. <laughs> right. Uh, the woman that he was to marry was the daughter of his financial backer, a guy named Gardner Green Hubbard, who was an amazing entrepreneur and patent lawyer uh, in Boston from a very wealthy family. And Hubbard's daughter, Mabel Hubbard, was deaf and was actually a student of Bell's and was some 10 years younger than him. And Bell, right at the around the key time when the telephone was being developed, Bell just fell head over heels in love with this, this young woman. And uh, it greatly complicated his relationship with his financial backer, who in my estimation, was turns out to be a seem like a relatively unscrupulous guy, and uh, you know, so not only was Bell getting his money from him for his research, but now he really didn't want to cross him because he really hoped to win the hand of this wealthy guy's daughter. And of course, Bell was was not a wealthy man himself, and so uh, it put him in a very very difficult position. And I think it has a lot to do with how the story ultimately turns out. So take us through the actual couple of days there when the patents are being filed and and what you think that Bell actually did. Well, you know, one of the fun things about this book is that I, I write it as a kind of nonfiction detective story uh, where I, I recount absolutely, you know, scrupulously, honestly, what happened to me over the course of a year of researching this subject. So I'm a little reluctant to give too many of the twists and turns away, um, and it's quite involved. But the the bottom line is this, that uh, we know for a lot of reasons. First of all, there was this picture in, in Bell's notebook. He must have seen a picture of, of Gray's filing. What had happened is that Gray had filed what at that time they called a caveat at the at the patent office. And this has since been discontinued. But at the time, if you didn't have... The, at this time, the patent office required everyone who had a... who wanted to patent something to require a working model of their invention. And uh, if you filed for a caveat, what you could do is sort of reserve a spot. You would have a year to file the model and finish the patent. But during that time the caveat would have all the same power as a patent. So you basically stake out some turf. And Gray's caveat was for a device to transmit voice over a telegraph wire. Um, at the time, what everyone, the holy grail of the moment, what people were really looking for in this field was not a telephone, but actually a telegraph that could send multiple messages at the same time. This is what Bell was working on. This is what... Gray was actually working on Thomas Edison was working on it. They wanted um, to increase the bandwidth of their day. Exactly. They had a bandwidth problem, and, and uh, the telegraph was becoming popular, and uh, and wires were needing, you know, they were starting to string. Sometimes you see these pictures of telephone poles with 
tons of wires on them from the late 1800s. Um, so the person that could come up with a, a means for sending, at this time, of course, you could only send one message at a time, one tele- telegram at a time. Uh, so the person that could figure out a way to send multiple messages would really have something that would be quite a lucrative invention. Um, so this is what everyone was racing for. But meanwhile, Gray had come in with a caveat on this very novel idea to send voice over the telegraph wire. Bell was de- had been called down to Washington on a patent that he had filed for a multiple messaging telegraph. And uh, it had raised interference with other patents that had been filed around the same time, including one from Elisha Gray. We know from Bell's notebook and from his letters of the time that he went down to Washington to try and sort this out with his patent attorneys. And what I was also able to, to turn up, and this comes later in the book, is that before he died, the patent examiner who was involved in this actually filed an affidavit in which he admits that uh, that he showed Bell Gray's confidential filing. And he did so because he was an alcoholic and he owed money to one of the partners in Bell's law firm um, who he had served with in the military. And he felt indebted to him. And so he did this. And so basically, you know, through this and many other things, we... Uh, I was able to really piece together exactly what what happened, and I, I think um, you know because it's so based on letters and the primary documents of the time. I think people will will probably find it convincing. Really fascinating. Talk about the psychological effect on on you when you realize that you're about to you know throw a spear into a into a myth here. <laughs> well. If you want the honest truth, the uh, the initial reaction was uh, really one of of kind of dismay and uh, and fear. I mean, I talk about this in the book. I I thought I must be wrong, basically. And uh, so when I first found that that picture in the in the notebook, I just shied away from doing anything about it. I mean, it might sound a little hard to believe, especially for a uh, for someone who's been a reporter for a long time, but the uh, the fact is, I really like Alexander Graham Bell, and um, one of the reasons I was there at MIT for the fellowship year is I was doing a project that had me looking into some of his stuff because I admire him, and so it was kind of like news that I really just didn't want to know about, and I didn't want to be the one, you know, who am I to go up against more than 100 years of history, and, and these kinds of historical myths are powerful. So initially, you know, I guess I just sort of shied away from it. I read a lot of secondary sources, tried to figure out how what other people had said about this or if anyone had noticed it, and it only made made things worse for me. It made it more confusing. In fact, one of the main biographers, a guy who actually won a Pulitzer Prize, Robert Bruce, who wrote a big, fat biography of Bell, he uh, he actually cast the aspersion that Gray might have cribbed his ideas from Bell. You know, so then I'm thinking, well, gee, maybe I've got it backwards, but. The more I looked into it, I didn't have it backwards at all, um, and I'm able to kind of sort that out. And once I found a few more sort of clues on the trail, I really got hooked in. There were so many, it, it was so at odds with with the history that I had learned as a kid and that everyone knows um, that I really, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to really try and get to the bottom of this thing. And, uh, and it turned out that it, um, even though I'm something of a, of a novice at, this kind of archival research, I was there at MIT with a lot of 
really eminent historians of science and technology who helped me out quite a bit. And I was able to go to a lot of archives and really find an unbelievable wealth of information about this. I remember seeing the movie about Bell with uh, Donna Michi. Right. And there's no movie about Elijah Gray. <laughs> no, there is not. Yeah. There's not. And, uh, and that was, you know, that's a, that's a fun part of the book too because, um, uh, it was much harder to find out. Uh, Bell wrote down everything and one of the great things that, that, um, uh, it's a lot of fun for people if they, if they do read the book. Um, Bell's papers and most of, of the really key primary documents that I use in the book are available online from the Library of Congress in high-resolution digital form. It's just a fabulous resource. Um, it was fabulous for me and um, and uh, could be a lot of fun for people who, who get involved in the story themselves because you can actually pull up the copies of the, the letters in Bell's own hand um, from the... Uh, you know, straight from the web, and it really helps to bring the history alive. And you can do that over your DSL line. <laughs> yes, you can, right, which is, of course, a descendant of the technology that Bell himself pioneered. So um, so that's fun. Now, meanwhile, Elisha Gray, you got to go into, you know, look at musty papers for the most part. And, uh, um, and one of the great things about this story is that um, – is this question of, you know, how is it that Gray, uh, when Bell introduced the telephone, how is it that Gray didn't recognize it as his, his own invention, and why didn't he raise a stink about it, or did he, and what did he do about it? And there's a great moment, one of the very first times when Bell's introducing the telephone to the world. It's at the Philadelphia Exposition of 1876, um, which is this World's Fair, incredible event. And, uh, and there's a panel of judges that's going to decide the most amazing invention of the of the of the event um, and there are actually a lot this was of course the golden age of invention there are all sorts of things happening but who's on the panel um, uh, but none other than elisha gray so you have a, a situation where gray is actually passing judgment bell has to demonstrate his device to a panel that includes the guy who he uh, he plagiarized the whole transmitter idea from and so how so there's a lot of tension there and it's there in bell's letters uh the trepidation that he felt before before that and it's pretty amazing how he was able to get away with it and that's sort of part of the interesting thing i was able to another one of the parts that i was able to unravel a bit well we'll, we'll make people actually read the book to find out how we got away with it <laughs> right okay good <laughs> let me ask you about uh let's say a couple of good things about bell in he he was a really gifted inventor and a and a real scientist and and kind of a visionary in in a lot of ways. You talk in the book about how later in his life he he got involved in biological experiments with uh, sheep breeding and uh, also he he uh, was worried about the greenhouse effect a century more than a century ago. That's right. No, he had an incredible life. Um, one, you know, one of the founders of of. Science Magazine, uh, the head of National Geographic for a while, um, uh, all, invented all sorts of things, played an incredibly key role in, uh, in the invention of the airplane. Um, he was crazy for flight, and this is one of the first ways that I had known about him because I wrote a, a previous book uh, about uh, early aviation in America called Unlocking the Sky. And Bell played an incredible role because he was 
that much older, but he amassed a team of, of young people who um, actually won the Scientific American Prize for the first public flight in America, beating out the Wright brothers who had invented a plane but had yet to publicly demonstrate it. Um, so it was Bell's team that actually took that prize. Um, so this was Scientific American sort of had the X prize of, of <laughs> the did. day. They w- did. When is this, in the, in the 19 aughts? Yes, 1908. Um, and, uh, and uh, yeah, you know, Scientific American uh, quietly wrote to the Wright brothers and said, you know, we've got these this team, Bell's team, uh, wanting to come in and demonstrate a plane, and we've heard that you have a, uh, you know, that you're working on something, don't you want to do it and demonstrate a prize? And the, the Wright brothers at the time were, uh, well, they were an odd, 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 uh, odd set of brothers, and uh, they um, basically were very worried about uh regaining control of the airplane, so they weren't ready to show it to anybody yet. They wanted to, um, they already had a, a, a strong patent on the airplane, but they were in negotiations trying to sell rights to uh, to a government. Uh, the U.S. wasn't really buying, but, you know, so they were tied up with their own idea of how to bring this technology out, um, and it had gone on for years. Um, they still hadn't demonstrated it, and uh, meanwhile, um, Bell's team, which included uh, a guy named Glenn Curtis, um, uh, came up with a with an airplane that had many of the modern features that we take into account today, um, including tricycle landing gear, and um, uh, it had uh, uh, used control, uh, a, a more modern form of control on the wings, um, and uh, and ended up with top honors from Scientific American. They sent out a team to. To upstate New York and uh, witnessed the flight. You had to fly for uh, for more than a kilometer, and they did it. And and later on, you you find the uh, the engineering firm Curtis Wright. Well, uh, that's right. Kurt, uh, ultimately, uh, Curtis, uh, the the Wright brothers um, bankrupted Curtis twice, and they, um, uh, you know, there was a, a long patent battle, but ultimately, at the very end, Curtis was able to buy them out. He just made a, a better airplane from the start. And again, um, uh, Alexander Graham Bell played a key role in bankrolling that research and also serving as the, you know, as the sort of guiding light. So he, he was a, certainly a talented guy and a visionary. And the, the other thing to remember about this telephone story is that, uh, that it all happened when Bell was still in his 20s. The telephone was invented when he was 29 years old. So he's a very young man at this time. And uh, and an interesting thing about the the story, I think, is that it it sheds a whole different light on a lot of the things that happened to him afterwards. I believe, um, you know, one thing is that he uh, uh, all the biographers note that he never had anything to do with the business side of the telephone company that bore his name, and people usually say, oh, well, you know, he didn't have a head for business. But I think there was a lot more to it. Um, a really interesting thing that, that's never been explored quite so much is that in a very unusual move for the time, he ended up um, uh, giving all his shares of the telephone companies, a third owner of the company with his financial backers. And uh, after all this transpires and he, he marries his young wife and he gives all the all the proceeds of the telephone writes them over to her name, which is just about never done in that period. Um, and he just washes his hands of, of uh, the telephone company. And so I think there's a very interesting tension because so much of his fame and status 
in the scientific and techn- technological community of his day um, was due to, to the invention of the telephone. And he certainly profited from that and, and really liked it, demonstrating the telephone to the queen and winning prizes and honorary degrees. Um, but I'm sure there must have been um, some guilt and remorse in there, too. And I think it shows up in uh, a lot of things that transpired in his later life. It's a really interesting detective story and sort of psychological evaluation, both both of him and of yourself in the uh, in the course of unraveling this. The Telephone Gambit Chasing Alexander Graham Bell's Secret by Seth Shulman. Seth, good to talk to you today. Thanks. Well, thank you, Steve. For more on The Telephone Gambit and Seth's other books, go to his website, sethshulman.com. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, a NASA spacecraft will come within about 200 kilometers of the planet Mercury this week. Story two, a new study finds that violent crimes increase after a new violent movie comes out. Story three, the cognitive impairment associated with sleep deprivation was completely corrected in monkeys with a nasal spray of a brain chemical involved in sleep regulation. And story four, 45% of doctors in a survey admitted that they sometimes prescribe placebos to patients. Time's up. Story one is true. The Messenger spacecraft is flying by Mercury this week. A course correction scheduled for January 10th isn't even necessary. The flyby will capture images of Mercury never before seen. The flyby also will provide the gravity assist necessary to put Messenger in orbit around Mercury in March of 2011. Story four is true. 45% of 231 internists surveyed said they knowingly on occasion prescribe placebos, figuring that since there's a placebo effect, maybe it can be taken advantage of. For more, check out the January 4th episode of the Daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science. And story three is true. Sleep-deprived monkeys given a peptide called Orexin A had their cognitive skills improved to normal even after staying awake for up to 36 hours. Military personnel, on-call physicians, and, of course, cramming undergraduates are potential beneficiaries of the research, which was published in the Journal of Neuroscience. All of which means that story two about a study showing that violent crimes increase when a new violent movie comes out is totally bogus, because a study presented last week at a meeting of the American Economic Association found that violent movies seem to actually decrease crime rates, probably because those prone to violence are sitting in a movie theater enjoying depictions of violence rather than contributing to mayhem. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Siam Podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com and check out numerous features at the new siam.com website, including the top stories, the hot topics section, and the fascinating feature, Strange But True. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Yeah.